0: The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, February 1st, 1960. I'm Sally Helm. It's a brisk afternoon, colder than it's been recently. The four students meet on campus in front of the library. They stayed up most of last night, talking, planning. They know that what they're going to do today is going to change their lives and their families' lives, though they likely have no idea just how far it will reach. Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, David Richmond, and Ezell Blair Jr., who would later change his name to Jabril Kazan, they're all freshmen at the Agricultural and Technical College of North Carolina in Greensboro. They're all black and living with the indignities and injustice of segregation. At the Woolworths Five and Dime department store in downtown Greensboro, They'd be allowed to buy clothes, but not try them on in the fitting rooms. They'd be allowed to enter the store and browse the shelves, but they wouldn't be allowed to eat at the store's lunch counter. Woolworths is a really visible emblem of an unjust system. And today, they've decided to do something. They're going to walk into that Woolworths, walk up to that lunch counter, and sit down. Kazan is in his Sunday best, suit and tie. McCain is wearing his ROTC uniform. Richmond is in a leather hat. McNeil has on his Italian coat. The walk to downtown is about 15 minutes, and the men are quiet most of the way. They're wondering what might happen at the lunch counter. Will they be arrested? Attacked? Could they be killed? Despite the danger, they're committed. They reach the Woolworths and open the door. Today, What happened when these four men sat down at that lunch counter in North Carolina? And why did this particular protest manage to reignite a sputtering civil rights movement?
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: Dr. Tracy Parker wrote a book about a really particular topic that's part of the Greensboro story, department stores. And not because she's particularly a department store fan.
2: I'm a baby of the 80s, right? So the shopping mall was, that was the thing. And so every weekend I would go with my parents to the shopping mall. And they loved department stores. I'm not of that generation. I consider myself of the Gap generation.
0: But when she looked into the history of department stores, she found that they've long been the site of complicated negotiations over class and race and labor rights. They became battlegrounds. And that's certainly true in the case of Woolworths and the Greensboro Four. Dr. Parker is now an associate professor of African American studies at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And she says when she's teaching the civil rights movement, the Greensboro sit in always feels especially relevant to her students.
2: We're talking about a bunch of 18-year-olds. There's something relatable about it. There's something about their ideology, their activism, that continues to play out over the course of the Black Freedom Movement. And I should be clear, when I say the Black Freedom Movement, I mean the movement that begins with abolition and is still ongoing with Black Lives Matter. And so I think there are many lessons to be learned from the Greensboro Four.
0: The Greensboro Four were college freshmen in 1960 meaning that they grew up in the 1950s. And though the 60s would be remembered as the great era of civil rights activism and turmoil, there was a lot of that happening in the 1950s too. In 1954, when the Greensboro Four are in middle school, the US Supreme Court makes its famous Brown versus Board of Education decision, which held that separate but equal is inherently unequal, and so schools have to desegregate. In 1955, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. helps lead the famous Montgomery bus boycott. In 1957, the Little Rock Nine integrate Arkansas's Little Rock High School, but only after the National Guard is called in to protect them. On the one hand, there's progress. The city elects its first black city council member in 1951. On the other hand, Greensboro, like many American cities, is rigidly segregated. And African-Americans are fighting against that segregation all through the 1950s. Like in 1954, a group of black golfers stages a sit-in of sorts when they play nine holes on one of Greensboro's municipal golf courses. It's for white players only. They eventually win the right to play on that course, though other parks and recreation areas remain segregated. So Greensboro,
2: It's an interesting place to be. It's considered by some folks to be the moderate South. They embrace the Brown decision to some degree, some begrudgingly, some warmly. There's one white mother who actually tells a local newspaper that she would accept the decision and try to make the best of it.
0: After Brown, Greensboro does integrate its schools, at least nominally.
2: Within a couple of years, right, we're talking about two or three years, it becomes very clear that the only thing that's happening is token desegregation. Notably, in 57, six African-Americans were admitted to all-white schools. But in general, Greensboro is not living up to the expectations of many African-Americans when it comes to school desegregation.
0: In fact, the whole country is not living up to those expectations. White people in many towns and cities and school districts are fighting integration any way they can. And by the late 1950s, it feels like the national civil rights movement has sort of stalled.
2: What we see is the slowing down of progress when it comes to racial integration. And so when King comes to Greensboro in 1958,
0: he visits Bennett College, a women's college in Greensboro. And there...
2: He gives this sermon that says that there's been real progress when it comes to race relations. But he says that there's a long, long way to go. And in this speech, or in his sermon, he actually advocates strongly for nonviolent protests to end segregated accommodations. And in the audience, when he's giving that speech, one of the Greensboro Four is a high school student.
0: Isel Blair, today Jabril Kazan, had grown up in Greensboro.
2: And he's sitting there during the speech listening to King. And he says if I remember correctly, he says that the words, when they came across a loudspeaker, he could sort of feel the vibrations, right, from the microphone, he could feel his heart palpitating. And he says that he cries, like it brings tears to his eyes when he's listening to King. And so it's no surprise to me that two years later, right, almost two years to the day later, he joins three friends and trying to desegregate lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina.
0: Those three friends are David Richmond, Franklin McCain, and Joseph McNeil. Richmond, in fact, is also in the audience at that Bennett College speech. Richmond, McCain, and Kazan become friends in high school, at Greensboro's all-black Dudley High. When they head off to college together at North Carolina A&T, they meet Kazan's freshman roommate, Joseph McNeil, who had just moved down from New York City. And soon, the four young men are staying up late at night, talking about politics and the civil rights movement.
2: All four of these students had been members of their college's NAACP group. They were members of other youth groups. We're talking about very conscious students who were keenly aware of the current changes flowing through the South.
0: In January of 1960, halfway through their freshman year, something happens to McNeil that takes all of this talk and turns it into action.
2: So he's coming back to school from Christmas break and he's taking the Greyhound bus down. There's a stop in Richmond, Virginia. And while he's in Richmond, Virginia, he tries to get something to eat, but he's refused service at the eating facility in the Greyhound bus terminal.
0: He tries to order a hamburger, and he's told that he can't.
2: So it's that moment that when he gets back to campus, he feels like enough is enough.
0: McNeil is angry. He talks to his friends, and the four of them decide they want to do something to protest segregation.
2: So you would probably hear them in their dorm room, right, planning out, meticulously planning out this protest that they execute in February.
0: They could have chosen any number of segregated businesses for a sit-in, but they very deliberately chose a department store.
2: Department stores are one of the places where racial discrimination, racial segregation was most visible. The other being probably buses and schools. African-Americans were permitted to enter, they were allowed to browse, they could buy, but they weren't permitted to try on and return clothes. They were forbidden from eating at store restaurants. For example, in Charlotte, North Carolina, at W.T. Grant, whites ate at a lunch counter that served hot food on China plates, while African-Americans sat at a separate lunch counter in the store basement and were served only cold food on paper plates. So, when you go into the department store under one roof, racial discrimination and segregation were glaringly obvious.
0: Woolworths is a discount department store, commonly known as a five and dime. When Dr. Parker explains it to her students, she compares it to a Kmart or a Target today. Like those stores, it was a chain. Which was important, because this action was one that could be replicated at stores in other places. And so the students choose the Woolworth's lunch counter. That's where they're going to sit in.
2: They get dressed in their best clothes, their Sunday best. So they are exemplars of Black respectability. And they set out to desegregate.
0: They enter the store around 4.30 p.m.
2: When they walk in, as a matter of fact, Kazan, formerly Aziel Blair, describes that he's trying to regulate his breathing. He's that nervous. He feels his temperature starting to increase. And he's feeling his collar get tight around his neck. And he's trying to loosen his tie just a slight bit. There's a lot of adrenaline in here with these young men felt.
0: They buy a few small items. A notebook, a hairbrush, toothpaste. They make sure to keep their receipt. And then they walk over to the store's lunch counter and sit down. Frank McCain later described the moment in an interview.
2: said, he sits down on this stool. That's, you know, we're talking about a stool. It's something very simple, right? And yet it holds so much power. And when he sits down, he felt transformed in a way. He says that he felt really relieved. In fact, he says at some point in time um, that he felt clean and he felt like he had gained a bit of his manhood back with that act.
0: It takes a moment for people to notice what's happening. But then...
2: They're approached by a white waitress, and she says
0: that the counter
2: doesn't serve Black people. They replied that they had been served elsewhere in the store, and they didn't understand why they couldn't be served at the lunch counter. To which she replied, it's just
0: custom. The men refuse to move, and the room goes silent. After a while...
2: A Black waitress... Jenna, um, Genevieve Tinsdale comes up and says, you're starting trouble and directed me to leave. She's really concerned for them and herself, right? Because taking such action places not only these four men in danger that could result in incarceration, that could result in violence, but, and it could certainly result in death, but it is a threat for the entire Black community.
0: Still, they stay on their stools. The store manager comes out and asks them to leave. They stay seated.
2: He wasn't quite sure what to do. You know, the manager left them to just quietly, hoping that they would go away, quietly do their homework.
0: At one point, a police officer arrives.
2: And he walks behind the four students. He takes out his Billy Club. And one of the young men, McCain, was thinking, this is it. Right? This is the moment in which they're going to be hit with nightsticks. And the cops paces behind them for a bit and they're feeling very nervous, very unsettled. But nothing really happens, right? There's no words said. There's no escalation of the situation. It's at this moment that the activists begin to understand the power that they could have in using a nonviolent tactic, such as a sit-in. And so the officer actually leaves soon thereafter.
0: But the men are still prepared for violence and confrontation. The last person to approach them that day is an elderly white woman. McCain later says that he's worried when he sees her eyeing them. That could mean trouble. But when she finishes her coffee and donut and approaches...
2: She said she was proud of them. And she had wished that they had done this 10 years earlier.
0: In the end, the Woolworths' manager is so flummoxed by this peaceful protest that he just closes the lunch counter early. The four men exit peacefully. And they go home. Word of what they've done spreads immediately.
2: We're talking about college students. I don't, you know, College students immediately share information soon to get back to the dorm. It's like a perfect place to try to build a movement.
0: The next day, the four students return to Woolworths. And this time, roughly 20 Black college students join them at the counter. The local media are there too. By the next day, there are more than 60 students at the Woolworths lunch counter. By the next day, there are 100. The place is packed, crowds are spilling onto the street. Among these protesters are students from Bennett College, the women's college that hosted Dr. King's speech in 1958. Many of these women were integral to organizing the sit-in.
2: They were foot soldiers. They were picketers. They were marchers. They were canvassers. They coordinated carpools and provided replacement protesters. I mean, they were really an organizing vehicle.
0: By day five... There are 1,000 people at the Woolworths in downtown Greensboro. And as more and more sit-in participants gather, white crowds gather too. And they make their anger known. These nonviolent students
2: had food thrown up, hot coffee thrown up, They were spit on. I mean, they really were subjected to violence in ways that attempted to humiliate.
0: The local press is reporting on all this, and the protest also gets coverage way beyond Greensboro.
2: They drew the attention of the press and television throughout the nation. The New York Times in particular reported on the protest for weeks, if not months, which is key because it keeps the spotlight on Greensboro.
0: As all this is happening, other students in other cities begin staging their own sit-ins.
2: And eventually... Sit-ins are carried out in Richmond, Atlanta, Nashville, and more than 70 other southern towns and cities.
0: By the end of the 1960 school year, over 1,500 Black demonstrators have been arrested for participating in sit-ins across the country. The civil rights movement no longer feels like it's losing steam.
2: You've got now hundreds, thousands of students, high school students and college students, who are now actively involved in the civil rights movement, who are trained in the principles of nonviolence resistance.
0: And some of them decide to formalize all this activism. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a major civil rights organization, holds a gathering for student activists at Shaw University in April of 1960.
2: And at that conference, Ella Baker, who had been a longtime civil rights activist, is present. And they established the Student Nonviolent Coordinating
0: Committee. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, becomes a major force in the civil rights movement.
2: SNCC is going to be essential to voter registration. They're going to be integral to the implementation, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: And the energy for starting SNCC really can be traced to this moment in Greensboro. But there were many protests and even sit-ins that came before this. For example, civil rights giant Reverend James Lawson had been leading nonviolent protest workshops for years and had held sit-ins in Nashville, Tennessee in 1959. Dr. Parker tells us there are a couple of reasons why the Greensboro sit-ins in particular took off. One has to do with the students themselves, their age and their life experience. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till had been murdered by white supremacists in Mississippi. So these four students
2: would have been, you know, had they been same place, same time, they would have been classmates of Emmett Till. For that generation, Emmett Till would be like Trayvon Martin for my students. This was something that they had listened to, that they had kept an eye on, that had made national news.
0: That extended to the entire youth movement. These students had been galvanized by the tragic death of Emmett Till. And his murder also brought media attention to racism in the South, more than ever before. That becomes another major factor in these protests, the changing media landscape. We're
2: at a moment in 1960 where television and the media are huge.
0: Increasingly after World War II, more and more people have TVs, and that helps the message of the sit-ins spread.
2: And so this becomes a really broad movement. You know, you could say that it it happens at the right time.
0: The Greensboro sit ins happen at a moment when a broad group of students is poised to engage in activism and when the media landscape helps them get their message out. Their national impact was far greater than the four students could have dreamed. And they also had an impact at home in Greensboro. The sit in morphs into an economic boycott of Woolworths and other stores in the area. Over the summer, when the college students leave town, black high school students take their place. By midsummer, the boycotted stores have collectively lost about $200,000, which would be close to $2 million today. And that finally pushes Woolworths to take action. On July 25th, 1960, 175 days after the four men took their seats, Woolworths decides quietly to integrate.
2: They do it without much publicity or fanfare, and it involved asking four employees, Geneva Tinsdale, Susie Morrison, Athena Jones, and Charles bess to change out of their work clothes and sit at the counter and order a meal.
0: The success of these protests, in Greensboro and across the country, it can reframe the way we think about the civil rights movement. We tend to focus on a few big-name leaders and talk about the way that they drove change, But Greensboro, this protest that revived the movement as a whole, it didn't happen because of a few major national leaders. It happened when four friends, college kids, had had enough and decided to do something. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. And our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.